You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. really long passage that's here in front of you tonight. Um, I just want to give a quick little note to you about the structure of Revelation because I think it's really important to speak to this issue uh, before we jump in and look at it. The book of Revelation, really from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 20, it's looking at the same event over and over from different angles. So if you think about it like this, a couple weeks ago I went to the UT men's basketball game against Kentucky and sat way up in the nosebleed section. I kind of had an aerial bird's eye view of the game. I, I could kind of see what was going on down there. But uh, I, So from, from my vantage point, I could see the plays that were happening. But after a really awesome play, they would, of course, sort of rewind the tape and then play it again on the big jumbotron from a different vantage point. And if it was a close call or something was in question, they'd you know, play it again, maybe from a different vantage point, slow motion. Same idea is going on in the book of Revelation. It looks at one chunk of human history, which is between the two comings of Christ, plays the tape, stops it, rewinds it, plays it again, but from a different angle. So you have to see this. The, the book of Revelation is not linear, it's not chronological, it's cyclical. And if you miss this little piece, and you try to read it by yourself, you're going to come out with you know, cracked out interpretations because that's what's going on. It's just on a loop. So if you were here last week, the tape was played, and the tape basically communicated this, that we live in a broken world in which people suffer. But we looked at it from the angle of what does that mean for those that trust in Jesus? And what we learned is that the Lord has sealed them and he has ensured for them a, a glorious future. But here, beginning in chapter 8, the tape stops and it rewinds and it starts over and says, okay, let's look at it again, that we live in a broken world in which people suffer, but now let's look at it from a different vantage point. What does this mean for those that don't trust in Jesus? So that's, um, that's the setup for, uh, for this passage tonight. Let me read it and then we'll jump in and talk about it. We're just going to be reading a, a chunk out of chapter 8 and a chunk out of chapter 9. It starts in verse 6. It says this, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into a sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. The third, a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, and it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. 
at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll um, try to unpack it. Father, we need your grace, as always, um, when we come into the presence of your word, and I feel that weight especially... Uh, so tonight, when you read a passage like this that is pretty daunting and uh, heavy and just kind of confusing, I pray that you would give me grace as I seek to teach it and give us grace as we seek to uh, hear and, and learn from this passage. Would you open up our eyes? Would you unclog our ears? Would you make our hearts sensitive and malleable so that we would be awake and sensitive to your presence? And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. My freshman year in college, I met a, a good friend named Russ, who would later become my best man and still to this day is one of my best friends. He was a year older than me. He was a sophomore, but he was, living, he was still living in the dorms at the time. He was just down the hall. And as I got to know Russ, I quickly discovered that Russ had a really hard time waking up in the morning for his 8 a.m. class. I'm guessing is he's in good company. But what he would do, you know, I'm sure this can, you can relate to this, where he'd set the alarm like right next to the bed. He was on a, he was on a bottom bunk bed, uh, a bottom bunk, and right next to his bed he'd set his alarm, and it'd go off in the morning. He'd, he'd roll over, hit it, and then, of course, just roll back over and go to sleep. So what he decided to do is, okay, I've got, I, can't, I can't keep sleeping through this class. I've got to wake up. So he would take his alarm and put it on the other side of the room. So that when it went off, he had to physically get out of bed and walk to the alarm and turn it off, which, of course, I'm sure his roommate loved. But he would do that. The only problem with that is as soon as he hit it, he would still kind of like a zombie walk back and then go to sleep. So he devised this brilliant idea, I think. He tied, this is a true story, he tied a one piece of string around his ankle 
And he connected that string to a um, glass filled with water that he kind of hung in sort of the rafters of the bed. So that when the alarm went off in the morning, he'd wake up, and as he would walk to go turn it off, it would trigger the cup to pour water into his bed. So that when he turned it off and he returned, he wouldn't want to get back into a wet bed. Brilliant, right? The only problem is, is in his kind of zombie stupor, he would come to the bed and strip it and then just sleep on the, you know, plastic, nasty mattress that the university provided. Somehow he got a college education. I don't know how he passed that class, but he did. So Russ, here's my friend Russ has a really hard time waking up, even in the midst of alarms, even in the midst of crazy contraptions that he's setting up. And the reason I start that way is because that is somewhat the point of this passage. That there are people, spiritually speaking, that cannot wake up, even though the Lord is blaring sirens and alarms all over the world, trying to wake people up, and people are still sleeping through it. And so the question is, okay, why, what is it that God wants to wake people up Two, And what this passage shows us tonight is that the reality that God wants to wake us up to, the reason why he keeps blaring these alarms is because he wants to wake us up to the reality of his judgment. Now, I know that's just automatically like a topic that no one wants to talk about, that most of y'all probably in this room don't feel comfortable with, and certainly it's a topic that most people on this campus are kind of allergic to. And I think that's because um, talking about God's judgment automatically files you in sort of like the crazy file. You know, like you're automatically put in the same category as like the wacko fundamentalists. Or you're just automatically um, put in the category of you're just unsophisticated and regressive and no one wants to feel like that. This makes everyone uncomfortable. I, I don't really, like, I'm not thrilled to talk about this tonight, but I, I think this is one of the reasons why we do what we do in RUF is so that when you come to a hard passage of the Bible, if we're going to take the Bible seriously and actually figure out what's Christianity all about, you've got to look at hard stuff. So just know on the front end, this is just a hard passage. It's a hard thing to navigate. No one likes talking about it. Even Bible-believing Christians that believe in the Apostles' Creed, which has as one of the lines that he will come to judge the living and the dead. It still makes us feel icky. But here's the thing that I want to try to show you tonight, is that you and I have to have a rich and robust understanding of God's judgment. You can't do life without it. It's, it's necessary and essential for your well-being and sanity in this world. And so if that's the case I'm going to try to make tonight, I feel like it's a big case. We've got to kind of get into it. So here's how I want to get into it. And I think that this passage helps us kind of break it down and get into the reality of God's judgment. You've got to look at it from kind of three different vantage points. The past and the present and the future dimensions to God's judgment. But as it's actually laid out in the past, it just kind of goes in reverse. So let me go in reverse. We're going to look at the future reality of God's judgment, the present reality of God's judgment, and then the past reality of God's judgment. So there's our roadmap. There's where we're going. So first, let's look at the future reality of judgment. Beginning in chapter 8 through chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, you have these seven angels that are blowing seven trumpets. Now, if you were to take a concordance and look at any time in the Bible a trumpet is used, you would quickly see a pattern. 
that any time in the Bible some trumpet is blaring, it's always signaling the same thing, which is what? That the Lord is coming, that judgment is imminent, that these are warning sirens, these are alarms that are kind of ringing out to say um, the Lord is coming. But what are these warning sirens, what shape do they look like? Well, if you look at the passage, I won't get into all these details because it's such a long passage, but the first four trumpets, when they kind of blow, every area of creation is affected. Did you notice that? Like the, the environment, the natural resources, the sea, the sky, like everything in the created order is kind of getting rocked. And those are the trumpets that God is blaring. And what that tells you is this. That at some level, natural disasters and the calamities and all of the atrocities uh, that we experience in creation are God's warning sirens to say, there's something like this, but much worse that is coming. If you won't repent, if you won't bend the knee and give yourself to the Lord as your creator. Like all of the atrocities, all of the natural disasters are in some sense sort of alarm clocks that are ringing out to say there's a future dimension that is, that, that is coming that will be much worse. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, now, everybody kind of squirms at that and feels like, oh, that is so like primitive and offensive. Like modern sophisticated, we, we don't think like this. We don't talk like this. And to that sort of knee-jerk reaction that you're probably feeling in your gut, I just want to say don't be naive. Don't be naive. A- actually, think about it. You desperately want justice. You desperately, deeply crave and want justice. And here's why I know that this is true. Because you yell at refs. The reason why you yell at refs is because here's someone that's supposed to judge what's happening. And when you feel like they judge wrong, like there's something wrong and that you're, you're literally screaming at them, that anger that you feel is sort of moral outrage. This is not fair. You're wanting justice. You're wanting it to be made right. Something's not right and you want it right and you're angry. This is also why you get angry at uh, cars on the road. This is why I yell at cars on the road. Because when you're waiting in line, like, because there's construction up there and cars are backed up, and there's that car that's sneaking up the shoulder trying to get ahead of everybody and sneak in ahead of everybody, that's why you get angry. Because, because it's morally, they're going against the code. It's unjust and it's unfair, and that thing in you just says, this is not okay. This is also why you get upset when you get a grade from a professor that you feel like... Uh, when you feel like you got a grade that you didn't deserve, you get angry. You feel outraged. Like, this is unfair. We want justice. That anger, that sort of, like, thing in you that kind of bubbles up is you wanting justice. So we just need to be honest on the front end. Everybody wants justice. And we, as modern, progressive, sophisticated people, we're more obsessed with justice than anyone else ever has lived. And I think that's a good thing. What do we care about, culturally speaking? Social justice, environmental justice, those are good things. Look at it as a culture, though. Even culturally speaking, how many, like, crime shows are there on the television right now? There's, like, a thousand spinoffs of NCIS and CSI and Law and Order. Why are we so addicted to those sort of shows? We want justice. And the reason why we are craving justice and we're obsessed with justice is because we're made in the image of a God that craves and is obsessed with justice too. We all want it. 
But here's the reality. If you take that anger that you feel when something's unfair, when something kind of goes against the code, when something's not right, if you take that up to a cosmic scale and you amplify it by infinity, that's how God feels. And so God's going to hold everybody to account because he's good. If he would just look at all of these situations in life where people are taking advantage of each other, all of the injustices of the world, and he was just sort of indifferent at it, he would be evil. But he's not evil because he's not indifferent. He's actually quite angry. And so the Bible tells you right here, at least this passage tells you on the front end, that, that there will be a future day of judgment. And that's a good thing because it's, it's tied to his goodness. You want it. We need it. Even though it's sobering. That's the first sort of thing. The future reality of God's judgment. He will come to judge the living and the dead. But secondly, we need to look at sort of the present reality of God's judgment too. And, and, and here's where I kind of want to look at this crazy imagery in chapter 9 of these locust things. I don't know if you kind of were following as I, as I read along. But let me... Um, let me just kind of read verses uh, 3 through 10 again. It says, Then there came the smoke, uh, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant of any, uh, or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're allowed to torment them. Look at verse 7. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates of iron. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots of horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. What in the world? What is this? I just feel like this is one of the creepiest, freakiest, weirdest thing in the Bible. And I think that's intentional. That this image of like this army of locusts that are just kind of swarming out of this bottomless pit with these teeth and this crazy hair and the, and the things, this is, all, this is supposed to be freaky. It's supposed to be spooky. And what these images symbolically represent, quite frankly, it's demonic activity. Demonic forces that have been unleashed to essentially torment those that have chosen to be unrepentant. That God is saying that there there are demonic forces at work in the lives of people that are unrepentant bringing them and dragging them deeper and deeper into misery and into despair. And what this looks like, if you, if you look at verse 5 and 10, this basically says that the, 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 the way that this looks like, the influence of these sort of demons in the lives of people that haven't believed, that it feels like a sting, that it's this, it's this torment of misery that feels like a sting, that, there, that there's an emptiness felt of a life lived apart from God. Now, I know this is where you really are like, good grief, Matt and RUF just went crazy and wacko, and they're going to start talking about witches and goblins next. Demons, like real demons, really? This is 2015, we're talking about demons. But I want to show you that uh, this is not so crazy. Uh, Let me try to give you a couple of examples of this, of what I think this might look like in real life. Uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, a postmodern novelist named David Foster Wallace. 
I've, I've talked with you about this guy before. Some of you have talked with, about this guy before. He wrote this massive book called Infinite Jest. Uh, famous author. He's not a Christian. And in 2005, he was given a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And I want to just read you a little bit of, uh, of what he said there because I, I think it's unbelievably insightful. Here's what he says. Keep in mind, not a Christian. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He goes on and he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough, and it's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect as being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Now, here's someone who is not a Christian, but he is articulating the spiritual reality that's being described in Revelation. That a life lived apart from God, there's that sting That whatever you give your life to, if it's not God, it will eat you alive. And tragically, as some of you know, three years after he gave this speech, he committed suicide. And I don't know whatever it was that he was giving his life to, but whatever it was, it, it, it ate him alive. And Revelation is saying there are dark spiritual forces at work there. And you say, really? That sounds crazy. And Revelation says, yeah, things are not as they seem. There's more going on behind the scenes than we realize. Let me give you another example. Uh, Ben Gibbard, uh, famous musician, lead singer. I don't know if they're still around. Death Cab for Cutie. Um, Worst band name ever. But he gave a, he did an interview in Paste Magazine a number of years ago. And when I read it, I just thought thought it was so interesting. Here's what he said. He says, quote, I find it very hard to accept the wonderful things in my life. My life really is great. I do exactly what I want to do for a living. I have a wonderful person to share my life with. He's married to Zoe Deschanel, by the way. I have a great family. I have great friends. But somehow there's a void. I'm the last person who should be complaining or wondering why I'm perpetually unhappy. Now here's the question. How do you explain that? How do you explain a guy who has success and fame and celebrity and money and romance. And here's this guy saying, I have everything, and yet there's this void. And Revelation is saying, that's the sting. That's the sting. That emptiness, that life lived apart from God, that sting is what is going on. And again, you want to say, demons really doing that? Things are not as they seem. God's allowing people to feel the weight and the misery of a life lived apart from him. Let me give you one more example, just so you don't think this is like crazy, wacko revelation stuff. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a debate with what would have been the religious celebrities of the day. 
these were people that went to church every week. They read their Bible all the time. They prayed all the time. They were like awesome husbands and wives. And he's having this conversation with them, but they don't like Jesus. They're opposed to the gospel of grace. And Jesus looks at them. You can read this, John chapter 8. He looks at these nice, polite, Bible-believing people, and he says, your father is Satan. And there are dark spiritual forces enslaving you. And so I want to show you, things are not as they seem. This isn't like crazy, wild, atheist monster people. These can be really polite, nice, southern people that think they're Christians. And because they don't understand the gospel and because they're opposed to the gospel of grace, God lets them feel the sting, the emptiness and the void of a life lived apart from him. And so here's the question. Before we go on, we just got to ask the question, why? Why would God do this? This sounds a little crazy. Why would God allow people to experience present, you know, manifestations of judgment now? And here's why. It's because God is merciful. It's because he's merciful. Think about it like this. Why would you ever, why, why do you put, why do people put up electric fences and then shock collars on their dogs? It's because they're merciful. Because what they're doing is they're saying, when my dog gets to the end of my street, I want to introduce a little bit of pain into their life now. Because if I don't and they run into the street, they're going to experience complete pain, complete suffering. So you introduce a little bit now to prevent what could be complete and total later. Did you notice that fraction, a third, a third, a third, all the way through this whole passage? God's introducing these judgments, but they're partial judgments. Just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And what these little tastes of discomfort, these little tastes of the sting, the little taste of the void, these are the alarm clocks. These are the sirens that are ringing out. Wake up. Like, wake up. There's more going on. I don't know if, um, if you've seen the TV show The Office, but... Um, uh, there's a scene that I saw recently which I thought was so funny. It's where Jim um, uh, puts two and two together that Stanley, you know, the big sort of heavyset uh, guy that doesn't really care about anything, that Stanley doesn't notice anything that's going on around him. Remember, Jim's talking to some of the coworkers next to him, and he puts down his orange juice next to Stanley's hot coffee, and Stanley's doing his crossword puzzle and reaches over and drinks the orange juice and puts it back down and doesn't, like, skip a beat. He doesn't notice anything. And so Jim starts to wonder, how, how much does he not notice in the office? So he gets all the office in on it to kind of test the theory. And Kevin dresses up as Phyllis. You remember this? He's sitting across from him. And they have this whole conversation while Stanley's doing the crossword puzzle. Doesn't notice. Andy's sitting next to him. Has his shirt off. Has a conversation with Stanley. Doesn't notice. Michael calls a a conference meeting. And Michael's wearing like fake teeth. And all the chairs are facing the opposite way. Except Stanley's. And he comes in with his crossword puzzle. Sits down. Doesn't notice. Uh, Dwight brings a pony into the office. Doesn't notice. I just think this is this just is, it's a interesting image of here's someone that's awake but not really awake. Here's someone that's functioning and going through life and yet they don't notice what's going on around them. And before we look at this last passage, I, this last point, I at least just have to ask you this: Some of you in this room feel that sting, that void. That sort of emptiness of a life lived apart from God. And maybe you're walking through life just like Stanley, sleepwalking through it. And that sting is there to wake you up, 
to, to jolt you away to realize life doesn't have to be like this. There's more to life than this. But how? how? How do we know? And what is it? How do we get it? Well, we get to really kind of understand how uh, we come to our senses, as it were, how we become awake, is we've got to look at this last thing, the past reality of judgment. We looked at the future, we looked at the present, let's look at the past. And I think it's interesting, if you look back through this passage, any time judgment shows up in the Bible, it's always accompanied with these things, like, like things like chaos and earthquakes and darkness. And you see that kind of sprinkled throughout this passage too. And so it's really fascinating. In Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is on the cross, it tells you that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness. Like that's the middle of the day, noon to three. Jesus is up on the cross. And can you imagine like the sky goes dark? Like how weird and ominous and spooky would that have been? And as Jesus is writhing on the cross, and when he breathes his last, do you know what um, verse 51 says of Matthew chapter 27? It tells us that the earth shook and the rocks split. Jesus on the cross, and what do we see? We see, we see earthquakes, we see chaos, we see darkness. Why? Because at the cross, in that moment of time, judgment is being poured down upon him. That anger that we talked about that God feels, that amplified anger that God feels, that injustice and everybody that's being betrayed and everyone that's being cheated, everyone that's being taken advantage of, he takes that feeling of of, of righteous indignation and pours it out completely upon Jesus. Judgment of God falling down upon God. Why? I I think this is so mind-boggling because the God of the Bible tells you that God is so good and so holy and so committed to justice that he, he, he has to hold everyone to account. Nobody can get away with anything. And yet, he's, he's so merciful and so compassionate because he, he realizes, if I did that, no one would survive. It would incinerate the human race. So he comes down and in the person of Jesus bears the judgment of God that you and I deserve himself. The storm of God's justice falls upon Jesus in our place. There's an amazing image that, that you can kind of tie with this. Three years ago, there were, uh, you know, those big series of tornadoes that kind of swept across the country, specifically in Indiana. And there's this true story about this woman named Stephanie Decker, who was at home alone with her two small kids when the tornadoes were coming. And, you know, outside, it's kind of eerie, it's quiet, but, of course, you know, out in the distance, you hear the ringing of the alarms, that the, tornado, the, the, the tornado sirens. And so they go down into the basement, and she takes these two small kids, and she covers them with a blanket, and then she lays, kind of covering them with her body. And as the storm gets closer and closer, the house shakes, things start rattling, things start falling, walls start caving in, and debris and Furniture and heavy stuff starts slamming into her body. Seven ribs instantly broken. A steel beam falls from the house and nearly completely severs her two legs. Storm decimates the house, levels it, moves on. And in the debris, in sort of the wasteland that it left, the two kids emerge without a scratch. 
She survives, but she lost her legs, obviously broken ribs. And what she did is she quite literally absorbed the fury of the storm in her body. And what the gospel of grace tells you is that Jesus comes and absorbs the fury of the storm of God's judgment in his body for those that he has covered. For those that he has wrapped himself around to say, you are mine. And he bears in his body what you and I deserve. And as a result, because that is a past reality, this is why the Bible can look at you if you are a Christian tonight and say there is now, like right now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation, no judgment for, for you if you are in Christ because of this past reality of judgment. One pastor put it this way, the only way that you can take refuge from God The only way that you can find refuge from God is to take refuge in God. The only way that you can ever escape the very judgment of of God is to find refuge in him. And so I just want to end with this. If you're someone here tonight and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about all of this, I, I, I want to invite you to believe. I want to invite you to do just that, to to find refuge in him. Because maybe tonight's the night for you where you kind of say enough is enough. I'm done with the sting. I'm done with the void. I'm done with the emptiness. I want to find life and I will find it in him. So come because he is merciful. He has extended grace to you. He He has absorbed your judgment in your place if you'll just come to him. And if you're someone that already believes, that already does kind of find refuge in God, I, I want to invite you to be astounded with the glory of the gospel because it cost God a lot to love someone like you. It cost God a lot to love someone like me. And what that should do is that should make you profoundly humble and profoundly joyful. Humble because you can never, ever, 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 ever look down your nose at anyone again. You have no grounds to be morally superior to anyone because what the gospel tells you is you're so jacked up it took God to, God to save you. But he did. So it should make you unbelievably humble, but at the same time unbelievably joyful. To know here's this thing that I've been given, and I didn't deserve it. And to rejoice in that. The invitation for you tonight, regardless of where you are spiritually, is to wake up. To hear the alarms. To come to your senses. And to live in reality. Consider an invitation. Let me pray. Father, would you be gracious and kind and enable us to respond to these alarm clocks and not just sleep through them. Father, I know this is heavy and it's daunting. And yet, Father, with the eyes of faith as we look at Jesus, I pray that the reality of your judgment would not be this dark, scary thing, but would actually be the gateway into which we experience deep and profound joy and gratitude. For those of us here tonight that are wrestling with this, knowing that this is so sort of prickly and so offensive, would you give us, uh, would you give them grace? Would you give them uh, the freedom to wrestle with this? And by your spirit, I pray that you would draw all of us to yourself, deeper into your own heart, a heart that uh, is slow to anger, but quick to give mercy. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.